Good morning. It's good to see everyone this morning. I hope that you've had a good week in the Lord. You can go ahead and be turning in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4, and this morning we will be looking at verses 16 through 26 and the divergence or the contrast or the differences between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Let's get started by reading our passage together. Genesis chapter 4, beginning in verse 16. Hear now the words of the only true and living God. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Arad, and Arad fathered Mahushael, and Mahushael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Adah, and the name of the other, Zillah. Adah bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and harp and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Naamah. Lamech said to his wives, Adah and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. May God bless the reading and the hearing of his holy and infallible word. You may be seated. This morning, we're going to walk through our passage in three points. Our first point today will be a prosperous rebellion a prosperous rebellion where we will see in our first two verses that prosperity does not always equal God's favor. Our second point today will be rebellion and presumptuousness where we will look at verses 18 to 24 and see Cain's grandson, Lamech, and the contrast between the seed of the serpent and the people of God. And our last point today, call upon the name of the Lord, where we will look at our last two verses and see the beginning of prayer among God's people. Well, before we begin, let us do just that. Let us call upon the name of the Lord together, asking him for his help during our time together. Let's pray. 
Our Father who is in heaven, you have gathered us together this morning on this Lord's Day to worship you and to rest in the finished work of your Son, to look back at what he has accomplished, what he accomplished in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, what, and to think about what he is currently accomplishing as he upholds the universe by the word of his power, and even now, as he intercedes for us, his people. And Father, we long for and look forward to what he will accomplish in the future when he returns for us, his bride, and brings with him the new heavens and the new earth where we will get to dwell with him forever. Father, thank you that you gather your people together on the Lord's day to give us a foretaste of such things, of offering up prayers and petitions to you. Now we do it by faith, then we will do it in sight to offer up songs of praise and thanksgiving to you. Now we do it with eyes of faith looking to the right hand of the majesty on high. Then we will do it by sight. Hearing your voice as your word is read to us. Now hearing with ears of faith and one day longing to hear audible voice of God with our own ears. Oh God, thank you for the foretaste that you give us, not only in these things, but in this morning, getting to partake from your son's table, getting a foretaste of the marriage supper of the lamb. Father, help us as your people to not presume upon these things as though it were just another Sunday, but help us to grow in holiness. Sanctify us in the truth. We know that your word is the truth. And Father, we plead with you for those among us, whether our children or our guests who do not know you, that as your word goes forth this morning and is accomplishing your purpose for which you send it, we plead with you on their behalf to use it for mercy's sake in their lives and not for judgment. Use it in their lives by the powerful working of your spirit to give them new hearts, to grant them the gifts of repentance and faith, so that at the end of our service today, they would be singing songs of praise to you with true hearts, sprinkled clean with full assurance of faith. Oh God, we ask that you would do these things among us. We ask that you would do these things among our sister churches. We lift up this morning Cornerstone Church in Mesa, Arizona, and Word of Grace Baptist Church down in Wilkesboro. Father, be with our brothers and our sisters there this morning. Do these things that we have pleaded with you to do among us. Do them among them as well. Oh Father, for all the things that we hope for among us, for a growth in holiness and Christ-likeness, for a putting off of the old man and putting on of the new, 
for an increase of religious affections in our hearts and zeal in our worship, God, we would be so pleased and thankful and grateful if you would do this work in our sister churches as well. And that if you would use them as exhortations for us and that you would use us as encouragements to them. Lord, we lift them to you this morning. Father, we also lift our brothers and sisters throughout the world that are under severe persecution. Father, we want to lift up to you this morning our brethren in Yemen. Lord, we ask that you would protect them, that you would help them to advance your gospel even as they endure the civil war that began seven years ago. Father, we thank you that there is a current truce in that, but Lord, we do not trust in the decisions of men. We know that you are turning rulers and kings' hearts like rivers of water in your hand. And Father, we ask that you would turn them in gracious and merciful directions, that our brethren who are less than 1% of the population of Yemen and who endure the punishment of death for forsaking Islam and coming to Christ in faith. Father, we ask that you would protect them, that you would protect their worship in their homes, that you would be pleased to use them as your ambassadors there in Yemen. And Father, now as we turn our attention to what you have put before us this morning in your kind providences, help us to learn, help us to grow, help us to be conformed to the image of our King and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we come to you and offer up these prayers. Amen. In Proverbs 30, Agur, the son of Jochen, offers up a petition. Agur offers up a prayer to God in Proverbs 30 that I have often thought about. In verses 7 through 9, he asks God, on the one hand, to not make him rich. He asks God to not make him rich so that he would not trust in his riches and lose sight of his need for God, his desperate dependence upon God and end up denying him. While on the other hand, he also asks God to not make him poor so that he would not grow hungry and steal from others and break God's law and end up denying him and bringing profane upon his name. And this proverb of Agur in Proverbs 30 is basically the ending of the Lord's Prayer. He is asking God to not lead him into temptation, but that he would be delivered from the evils that can come with either great wealth or great poverty. And I've often thought about this prayer in my own life. I am probably not alone when I've been tempted to pursue things in order to pursue wealth in my own life, in order to make it a little easier for myself or for my family. And I thank God that as I look back over my life, that every attempt that I tried to do that, he chose to thwart it. 
I thank God as I look back over my life and I see my own weaknesses that he has been kind to me and to my own family to not give us great wealth, but also to not put us in great poverty. He's given us all that we need. He's given us many things that we want, but he hasn't made us wealthy and he has not made us poor. And I see that as a great kindness from him. In contrast to that, I often think about professional athletes or owners of major corporations who make millions upon millions or even billions of dollars, and I've often thought about how that prosperity and that money can become like a cage to them. It traps them in some ways. For sure, it makes their lives easier in some ways. It protects them in many ways, but how hard would it be, will, be for them to be willing to give up the influence that they have through their wealth, the protection that their money gives them, to give up that protective cage in order to follow Christ? Seems like it would probably be extremely difficult to give up those things that protects them, that gives them such influence and prosperity, and that is how it becomes a trap that they cannot escape. I cannot imagine how difficult it would be to give up such great wealth in order to pursue Christ wholeheartedly. I guess, as our Lord said, it would be about as hard as trying to get a camel through the eye of a needle. And I bring this up because as we're going to see in our first point this morning, after Cain murders Abel and leaves the presence of God, he has a prosperous rebellion. Look at verses 16 and 17 with me again. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife. She conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. Now last week we ended with Cain leaving God's presence and going east, and that's where we're picking up this morning. We can see in verse 16 that after leaving God's presence, murderous Cain settled in the land of Nod. But even though Cain had left God's special presence, we can see God's kindness to Cain here in verse 7, 17. We can see here the truth that in our God's great kindnesses, he gives good things to both the just and the unjust. Children are a blessing from the Lord, and he, he, he gives that to Cain. And we should see in this the lesson of our Lord Jesus from Matthew chapter 5 when he tells us, Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Brothers and sisters, we must realize that Cain has killed one of God's chosen ones. He murdered one for whom Christ died, and yet our God is merciful to him. He does this, and yet our God gives him good gifts. 
He gives them these good gifts, even though, as we will see in a moment, he abuses these good gifts that God gives to him. But even though all of that is true, we can see in our passage that it does not stop God from doing it. And so when we hear our Savior's command to us to love our enemies, to return good for the evil they give to us, to be willing to suffer even unjustly, beloved, do not think that our God is someone who says, do what I say, but not as I do. My beloved, from the very beginning, our God has been an example to us. And when we turn the other cheek, when we do good to those who do harm to us, we are like our Heavenly Father. Look at verse 17 and see our good God giving gifts to his enemy. Cain found a wife. He who finds a wife finds a good thing. Cain finds a wife. God opens her womb. There are many of his people who he doesn't open their womb, but God opens Cain's wife's womb and gives them a son, Enoch, the man who had murdered God's righteous servant, who had spoken arrogantly to God. Am I my brother's keeper? Don't be stupid, God. And yet we can see that in our God's kindness and long-suffering, Cain has the joy of a family. He has the joy that comes with having a genealogy to speak of. But even here, even in God's kindness to Cain, we can see his continued rebellion. God had cursed Cain back in verse 12 to be a fugitive to be a wanderer on the earth, to be a nomad. And here in verses 16 and 17, we can already see in Cain's actions this principle of striving against God's word. Cain, as a seed of the serpent, was to be a wanderer on the earth. And we can see here in verses 16 and 17 that instead of submitting to what God had told him he settled down in Nod and builds a city. And in this act of building a city, we can see even more self-centeredness from Cain here in verse 17. We can see here that he is serving as a forerunner for the wickedness that we will see when we get to Genesis chapter 11 in the Tower of Babel, that famous place where the people who were supposed to spread out over all the earth decided rather to settle down in one place and sought to do something that would give them a name for themselves instead of their creator. We can see here in our passage today that they got this tendency from their forefather, Cain. We can see that when in verse 17, that instead of him wandering the earth as he was cursed to do, he builds a city. Instead of naming the city that he builds for God and his work in the world, he names it after his son, Enoch. So while all of this is true, we must also recognize that we can see very clearly here that Cain prospered. He had a wife, he had a child, he built a city for goodness sakes. He was able to see his family name continue through his sons and his 
grandsons. He was able to watch them build culture, as we'll look at in a few moments. Cain had what we might call the American dream. He went from the rags of murdering his brother and being cursed by God, getting a second chance. He went from that to the riches of building a city. And it is right here, beloved, that we must immediately learn the lesson that prosperity does not equal God's favor. These things undoubtedly were indeed good gifts from God, but God, but Cain shows his just condemnation in that he abuses these gifts. Instead of honoring and glorifying God, he seeks a place and a name for himself in this world. It is true that Cain prospered, but he prospered in his disobedience. Beloved, we should learn that in this world, sometimes not only does prosperity not equal favor with God, but as I spoke of in the opening illustration, many times great wealth equals judgment from God. Imagine Cain for a moment sitting on his back porch in the land of Nod looking at the city that he had built, seeing all of his grandchildren, doing all the great things of culture building that we're going to look at in verses 20 through 23. Imagine Cain looking over all that he had accomplished and thinking to himself, I did all right. My life worked out pretty good. I I made some mistakes, but I'm okay. I built a city. My kids are prosperous. We've got food. We've got homes. I left God's presence, and I did it my way, and I'm okay. Beloved, do you see the deceptiveness of sin in circumstances like this? Can you see the deceptiveness that can come with prosperity and wealth by just assuming that it means God's favor is shining upon you? These things that should have been recognized as acts of kindness from God to Cain, these things that should have been sources of praise and thanksgiving from Cain to God, instead, because of the deceptiveness of sin and self-reliance, become sources of judgment in his life. Beloved, we must learn that all good gifts do come from God. And for us, as God's children... Sometimes good gifts are him withholding things from us that we desire. Those two are good gifts from our Heavenly Father. The brothers and sisters, we must learn to not measure our relationship with God by whether or not what we are doing is prospering. We cannot have bad things happen in our lives or the good things that we hope for not come to pass, and think that God is punishing us any more than we can assume that good things mean that we are having his favor. So how can we discern the difference? How can we know whether the good things in our lives are God's favor or his judgment in us? Well, first of all, if you're a follower of Christ, you can know infallibly that all things good and bad, in your life or working together for your eternal good. But you must learn that prosperity 
is not the standard that God holds us to. Things going well is not what we are to strive after. The standard that God holds us to is faithfulness to his revealed will. Whether or not faithfulness to his revealed will ends up in prosperity, that's his department. Faithfulness and praise and thanksgiving are what we are to strive after, what we must give to our God, whether we have plenty or we have a lack. Whether or not our labors and our desires seem to be fruitful and prosperous in this world or not. Brothers and sisters, faithfulness is what we are to strive after. Living and dwelling in the presence of God is what we are to long for. And as one of your pastors, beloved, this is my deepest desire for you. For you to strive after faithfulness in Christ's likeness. Your three pastors, beloved, want desperately to see you grow in holiness to see you conform to the image of Christ in every area of your life, come what may. Because growing in holiness and Christ-likeness always equals prospering in the eyes of our covenant God. Whether or not it means prospering in ways that we might measure. Whether or not we have a budget here at the Gathering Church of 3 million or 30,000, whether we end up here at the Gathering Church with 200 people or 20 people, whether Pastor Scott, Pastor Quinn, and myself are full-time or we're tent makers, beloved, your holiness is our greatest desire for you. And we are willing to put everything else on the chopping block if it means you will mature in Christ. And so, beloved, let us, as God's people, strive after that holiness because riches are fleeting. But laying up our treasures in heaven is eternal. And as we look around at the gathering church over the last few years, it is very clear that the Lord is prospering us, beloved. And that fact has been the source of much thanksgiving and praise to our God, and we trust that these things are all good gifts, but we cannot presume upon them or grow lazy in being conformed to the image of Christ just because we are prospering now. For what shall we gain by any of it if we do not grow in holiness, if we do not grow and strive after new obedience to our God, new ways of, of pleasing Him and, and what He has put before us. If we do not grow in repenting of our sins and faith in Christ and serving Him among each other and in our community and in the world, what good is all of it? We cannot be satisfied that He has allowed us to purchase this building if we will not grow in holiness in it when we gather together. Beloved, let us strive after holiness, so that we would not be trapped, ensnared like Cain by the deceptiveness of prosperity and riches. Now, as a brief excursus, before we move on to a second point, I want to take a moment and answer the often asked question, 
Where did Cain's wife come from? Cain's wife, more than likely, was one of Adam and Eve's daughters, one of his sisters. I only say more than likely because there's an outside shot. It could have been one of his nieces. But there were no other people on earth, beloved. There was not a tribe somewhere else separate from Adam and Eve that God created separate from them. It was Adam and Eve, Cain, and all of his brothers and sisters, so it is inescapable that Cain's wife must have either been his sister or there's an outside shot that if there had been a long time of, of a long period of time that passed between verses 16 and 17 there's an outside shot that it could have been one of his nieces now the question that usually follows that question is doesn't the law of Moses forbid marrying one's sister or marrying one's niece isn't that sinful and according to the law of Moses? And the answer to that question is a straightforward yes. You can find that answer in Leviticus 18. And so the challenge comes, well, how come Cain could marry his sister or his niece? Did God condemn him in this? Did God condemn Seth when he did it? And had Enosh? And there are a couple of answers. The first is pretty straightforward. There is literally nobody else. If they don't marry their sisters or if somebody doesn't marry their sister, then nothing's happening. If Adam and Eve's children were not able to marry each other, then they literally could not have obeyed God's command to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth, and to subdue it. If Adam and Eve's children could not initially marry each other, then we have another problem the promised offspring of Genesis 3.15 could have never been brought into the world as God had decreed it to be so. So the first answer is that in God's sovereign prerogative, he decided in the beginning stages of humanity to allow covenant marriage between brothers and sisters. However, the second answer is that this fact does not mean that this state of affairs can never change. And we know that to be the case because it is abundantly clear that in the Mosaic Covenant, God does change this state of affairs. And so we as God's people, as we are reading God's Word, trying to understand these things, we must learn to make distinctions. We must learn to reason according to the Bible. We must learn to not question God's word and make the mistake that Eve made at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what we will learn as we do this is that what is sinful under one covenant administration or at one time doesn't necessarily mean that it's sinful during another period of time or during another covenant. To give an example, it was sinful under the Mosaic Covenant, to not circumcise your son on the eighth day. But under the New Covenant, it is not sinful to not circumcise your son. It was a moral duty under the Old Covenant, but that covenant has passed away, and so now circumcision is no longer an issue under the New Covenant. 
And the same principle of God giving specific laws for specific periods of time explains why it was okay for Cain and Seth to marry their sisters, but it would not be okay for you to do so today. Well, so having touched on that often asked question, let's move on to our second point, rebellion and presumptuous. Look at presumptuousness. Look at uh, verses 18 to 24 with me again. To Enoch was born Arad, and Arad fathered Mahushael, and Mahushael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives, the name of the one was Adah, and the name of the other Zalah. Adah bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Naamah. Lamech said to his wives, Adah and Zillah, Hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. Now, the obvious point of this genealogy in verses 18 to 24 is to move us from Cain to Lamech. But as we are looking at this genealogy, it is interesting that when you begin looking at the details of it, we can see in these verses that there are close parallels between the seed of the serpent and the seed of promise. We can see this in a couple of different ways. You can see it, first of all, in shared names. We can see here in verse 18 that in the serpentile genealogy, you have Methuselah, or I'm sorry, Methushael fathering Lamech, who we can see in verse 23, like Cain, kills a man. However, as we will see in Pastor Quinn's sermons in Genesis 5, the genealogy of the seed of promise also includes a Lamech, but the Lamech in the genealogy of the promised offspring of Genesis 3.15 is not a killer. There's a contrast. The Lamech of the genealogy of the seed of the woman is the father of Noah. And I'll leave the juicy details concerning that for Pastor Quinn when he preaches through that genealogy. Secondly, we can also see parallels between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman by looking at verses 20 through 23. Look at verse 20. You can see that Jabal and his descendants dwelt in tents and have livestock. Doesn't that sound a lot like the people of Israel during their time in Egypt, during their time in the wilderness? Also in verse 21, you can see that Jubal and his descendants played music. In verse 22, Tubal-Cain and his descendants were workers of metal. I point these things out because we tend to not want to have anything in common with the seed of the serpent. We don't want to have anything in common with unbelievers. And when we are talking about the ways in which we think about the world and the ways we look at the world, when we think about morality, not having thing, anything in common with the seed of the serpent is a good thing for what do light and darkness have in common. 
However, we must recognize that in this world, as long as wheat and tares are growing together and existing together in this world, as long as that is true, there are going to be things that we have in common with unbelievers. We can see it in our passage this morning in the fact that the people of Israel, like Jabal, lived in tents and raised livestock. They even had a feast of booze after they had made it into the promised land to remember their times in tents and their wilderness wanderings. We can also see in the scriptures that the people of God, like Jubal, played the lyre and the pipe. We also know that Israel, like Tubal-Cain, had instruments of bronze and iron. And while these things are true, the point of our passage this morning, the point of this section of scripture in Genesis chapters 4 and 5, is that there is a difference between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Paraphrasing the insight of Warren Gage in his book, The Gospel of Genesis, while the seed of the serpent had tents and livestock, they had no tent of meeting with their God. They had no sacrifices from their livestock for a covenant God. While they had musical instruments, they had no psalms to sing to their God. While they had workers of metal, they had no temple to build or furnish that their covenant God might dwell in their midst. What we need to recognize in our passage and in this section of Scripture is that the seed of the serpent used these things to make a name for themselves. They used them to please themselves, to live in the land of Nod, to dream of city building and culture building. And as we have seen with Cain and Lamech, they used these things for the taking of life. However, what this section of Scripture is highlighting is that the seed of the woman uses these same things, but they don't use them in the same way that the seed of the serpent does. They don't use them to live the American dream or the Nodian dream, since we're east of Eden here but they use them to glorify their covenant God, to worship their covenant God. They don't use them to take life. They use them to give and preserve and promote life. They use them in these ways by faith as they serve the promise of Genesis 3.15. The point being that the culture that is represented here in our passage today, the city building, the farming, the music, the metallurgy, these things that we see in the lineage of Cain are not bad things in and of themselves. But, beloved, culture building is not to be an end in and of itself. To put it another way, these things are wonderful tools, but terrible masters. What I'm getting at as we are looking at this portion of our passage this morning is to realize, beloved, that for the seed of the serpent, Culture, progress, that is the highest goal. You do it because you can. That is the ethos of the life of those who are of the seed of the serpent. However, for the seed of the woman, for the people of God, worship is more important than progress. Pleasing God is more important than innovation. Worship is and communing with our God is our highest goal in life. It is 
our highest ethos. Our highest ethos is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, such that we can say that rightly understood progress in city building and technology and culture building, rightly understood, those things should always follow. They should flow out of, they should serve the ultimate end of worshiping and glorifying and enjoying God. They should not be ends in and of themselves. Beloved, culture building and progress just for their own sakes is sinful. All things must be done to the glory of God. Beloved, we must recognize that culture and progress must always flow out of a desire for worship and holiness. And in the New Covenant, these things should flow out of the preaching of the gospel. God's people living their lives out in the world as salt and light, planting churches so the multiplication of, of God's worship and praise would be multiplied in this world. And then culture... And technology flows out of that and is limited by what God has told us in his word, in his revealed will. These things cannot be ends in themselves because we understand as God's people that while we do have possessions in this world, possessions are means. They are not ends. We must understand that while we live in this world and we do build important things and we do seek to bless future generations, while all of that is true, beloved, we must always keep in the forefront of our minds that we are a pilgrim people. We know that we cannot take this world with us and we do not want to. Our inheritance is not fallen creation. Beloved, we do want to do good things. We do want to see good culture built. We do want to see new good technologies advance so that the next generation can stand on our shoulders. But we want them to stand on our shoulders in a way that helps them follow after Christ, that helps them lay up their treasures in heaven. Because our desire, hopefully, as God's people for the future generations is that they would lay up their treasures in heaven because we know as God's people that where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Brothers and sisters, Christ's sheep of every age have labored to do good in their generation, but they have also always had the mindset of the faithful in Hebrews 11. Let me read you a portion. After speaking of many faithful the author of the epistle to the Hebrews says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Brothers and sisters, we are looking for the city 
that God has prepared for us, not one that we can build for ourselves in order to make a name for ourselves here on this earth. And this does not just apply to literally the building of a city, but it also applies to our desires to be influencers, to have influence on whether it's social media or in the academy or in the culture in general or in our own professions. In this world, the kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of darkness share things like the internet, we share the academy, we share the arts, just like Israel shared tents, music, and forging with the people around them. But beloved, let us learn that we cannot use and pursue these things the same way that the world does. But rather, we must use these things for the goal of worship and the spreading of the gospel and growing in holiness. And so as you're thinking about that, look at the ways in which you right now are consuming and using social media or media in general. Look at the ways in which you consume music or the arts. Look at the ways in which you are pursuing academics. Look at the ways in which you are acting with our culture at large or in your own profession and ask yourself these questions. Are you consuming and pursuing these things like the world or like a citizen of a heavenly city? Are you consuming and pursuing these things for the approval of the world and the enjoyment of the fleeting pleasures that are here to be had? Or are these things tools which you use for the advancement of the gospel and the furtherance of your own holiness and Christ's kingdom in this world? Does the way in which you use and pursue these things that we have in common with the world, like the internet, does the ways in which you use them look more like the lineage of Cain or Seth? In other words, if we could pull up your Google search history, your activity on the interwebs, your phone, your music, if we could pull it up and plaster it up here on the wall, would we see kingdom labors, kingdom desires, a desire to grow in holiness, or would we see someone consumed with enjoying the fleeting pleasures of this life? Now, I imagine that most of us, as we think about that examining question, I think most of us, brothers and sisters, would see some combination of the two. But I want to urge on us all today, beloved, that we need, we must pursue holiness in all of these areas of our lives. Pursue things that are above, beloved. Think on things that are excellent, beloved. Put your mind on things that are eternal. Pursue those things that will call you, cause you to lay up your treasures in heaven in order to help you forsake the fleeting pleasures of sin in this world. And then you will be useful. To this world. You will be able to serve your purpose as an ambassador for Christ in this world. We do not do that by looking like the world. God's people are useful to the world inasmuch as we are separate and different from the world. 
Beloved, we have a message to take to them, a message of reconciliation. But reconciliation presupposes that you're wrong. You have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Reconciliation presupposes that you've got to change your mind and repent. And beloved, we do not help that cause when the way we use the things we have in common with the world looks just like the world. When we see how close we can get to the way they do things instead of seeing how close we can get to holiness and Christ-likeness. Now, as we are continuing going through our passage and getting into the details of Cain's genealogy here in 18 to 24, we need to begin by having at the foundation of our thinking that it is no accident that polygamy and the increase of violence and the presumption of men pretending to be able to make divine pronouncements, it's no accident that all of this happens away from the presence of the Lord, as we saw in verse 16. As we have that at the foundation of our thinking, we can see in verse 19 that Lamech took two wives, Adah and Zillah, and here again we can see a contrast between that, between the seed of the serpent's polygamy and the monogamy, just the ordinary monogamy of Adam and Eve in verses 25 and 26. And while we're on the subject of polygamy, having multiple wives, we must acknowledge, beloved, that while the Old Testament does not condemn God's people for having multiple wives, while that is true, we must also acknowledge that that was not the case before the fall. Polygamy was not a thing before sin entered the world. In the beginning, God made one woman to be Adam's helper. And so while we may not understand why God allowed his people to have multiple wives in the Old Testament, we should not act like every faithful man in the Old Testament had multiple wives. For instance, Adam or Abraham's promised son, Isaac. He wasn't a polygamist. Neither was Moses. In fact, when you read through Genesis and the law of Moses, it becomes very clear that while polygamy was tolerated, while that is true, it is also very clear that polygamy always caused problems. This is obviously borne out in the life of Abraham with Sarah and Hagar, Ishmael and Isaac. It's borne out in the life of Jacob with Leah and Rachel and the concubines. Born out in the life of King David with his multiple wives. And it seems to be implied in Deuteronomy 21, where it says, If a man has two wives, the one loved and the other unloved. And then it goes on to restrain a particular temptation that came with polygamy. So while these things are true, it still does not answer the question of why God allowed polygamy in the Old Covenant. Beloved, I must be honest with you. I cannot give you a definitive answer to that question. I cannot give you an answer that thus saith the Lord. I will suggest that perhaps one of the reasons why God allowed polygamy in the Old Testament was because of the heightened importance of physical offspring. 
the need of many physical children to bring about the promised offspring of Genesis 3.15 into the world. However, we do know that this emphasis changes after the birth of Christ and the Reformation in the New Covenant. There's no doubt that there is a marked Reformation and the emphasis going from physical offspring to spiritual offspring in the New Covenant. Perhaps this helps us to understand why when our Savior was challenged about divorce, he quoted the created order. He went back to the pre-fall condition of one man and one woman in Genesis 2. And even when he was asked about his family, he did not speak of his biological family, but he spoke of his spiritual family. That those who do God's will, those are his mothers and his brothers, his fathers and his sisters. Well, as we move on to verses 23 and 24, we can see plainly there that Lamech is continuing in the vein of his grandfather Cain. Lamech kills a young man for wounding and striking him, and while we do not know the details of this altercation, it seems that Moses is putting forward here that Lamech's response was not in proportion to what had been done to him. And then Lamech goes on to show his audacity in verse 24 when he presumptuously makes the pronouncement that vengeance, retribution for someone killing him should be worse than that which God had pronounced for Cain when he says in verse 24, if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. In this obvious exaggeration of Lamech, we see that the seed of the serpent who had been given an inch of mercy by God, we can see that having been given an inch, they tried to take a mile. Lamech presumes that he can make this pronouncement himself. He presumes that this authority, he has the authority in and of himself to take a decree of God and to not only apply it to himself, but to amplify it. Lamech obviously had a high opinion of himself. It's clear that Moses is presenting him as self-interested, as selfish. Beloved, though Lamech had a high opinion of himself, we are commanded in Romans 12 that we, as the seed of the woman, must not think more highly of ourselves than we ought. As we think about Lamech's presumptuous declaration here, we must learn, beloved, that we cannot and we should not be a people who feel entitled. Beloved, we are not above our Lord and Master, and so we should see ourselves as servants of one another and others. Brothers and sisters, this entire section of Scripture is a contrast between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And here, too, when we see Lamech's violence and his declaration of revenge, here, too, we need to remember that the ethic that our Savior taught us in the Sermon on the Mount is not to seek revenge, but instead it is to turn the other cheek, to go the extra mile, to return good for evil. And in the end, if we get abused in doing so, we do not lash back in vengeance, but we must submit ourselves to the mighty arm of our covenant God who loves us and know that he has said, vengeance is mine. We need to remember that the Apostle Paul has taught us in Romans 12, Beloved, never 
avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And Paul goes on to say, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Brothers and sisters, we are to have the mind of Christ. We do have the mind of Christ. We've been instructed that we possess it in Philippians 2, in our Savior, in demonstration of the fact that his people are different than that of Satan's, he instructed us when he answered Peter's question in Matthew 18. In Matthew 18, remember that Peter asked Jesus, Jesus, how many times must I forgive my brother? When he sins against me, Peter says, must I forgive my brother seven times? Do you remember that? Do you remember what our Lord told Peter? Our Lord Jesus, in an obvious allusion to our passage this morning, says, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Beloved, we let us have this mind ourselves and entrust ourselves to our God and Savior, and this naturally leads us to our final point today and how we entrust ourselves to our God and Savior. Call upon the name of the Lord. Look at verses 25 and 26 with me. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth, for she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. For Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. As we begin looking at this last point this morning, we should notice that there is a contrast with what we have been looking at in the life of Cain and Lamech. There's a contrast between what we have seen so far and what we just read in verses 25 and 26. Cain rejected his wanderer status and built a city. Lamech rejected the created order of one wife. Lamech per perpetuated, sorry, perpetuated the violence of killing a man. Lamech sought self-deification by presumptuously applying and amplifying a divine decree. There is a clear contrast between those strivings against God and just the ordinary simplicity of these last two verses. Adam knew the wife that God had given him, and they had another son, Seth. Here in the line of the seed of the woman, we don't see polygamy or murder. Here we just see that Seth, living a peaceful, quiet life, had his own wife, had his own son, Enosh. And here, instead of violence and presumptuous pronouncements, here we can see at the end of verse 26 that the godly line progresses not towards violence and presumptuousness, but towards prayer. God, in fulfilling his promise and his curse that a seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman would continue in fulfilling both of those things, he has allowed both Cain 
and Seth to be fruitful and multiply. But let there be no mistake, beloved, as we go forward, the hope of mankind does not proceed through the line of Cain, but the hope of mankind proceeds through the line of Seth. It was the seed of the serpent that rose up and murdered his brother. But though Abel was murdered, what we can see in the birth of Seth is a continuation of the seed of the woman that will bring about the promise of Genesis 3.15 to pass. And so in the birth of Seth, and then the continuation of his line that we will look at in Genesis 5, we have a kind of resurrection of the seed of the woman. Abel was of the seed of the woman, as we looked at last week in Hebrews, but he was murdered. But the seed of the woman is resurrected and continues to live through Seth. And we can hear this in the words of Eve in the second half of verse 25 when she says, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. Cain had murdered Abel, but God rose up Seth and then Enosh after him. And in a few weeks, we will see how this leads to the seed of the woman in Noah. And we can see in the latter half of verse 26 that after these things, after the birth of Seth and Enosh, that at that time people began to call upon the name of the Lord. And this theme of calling upon the name of the Lord that begins here in the scriptures at the end of our passage today becomes a theme that runs throughout the entire Bible. Calling upon the name of the Lord becomes associated with altars and worship in Genesis in chapters 12, 13, and 26. It becomes associated with prayer later on in the scriptures and the Psalms in Psalm 18, 116, and 118. And this theme of worshiping and praying progresses even further in the major and minor prophets as they prophesy about this Messiah, about the promised offspring of Genesis 3.15 coming into the world. And then this theme continues when that promised offspring comes into the world and Jesus actually lives, dies, and rises again after he fulfills and accomplishes the promise of Genesis 3.15 Calling upon the name of the Lord, this theme that begins here in our passage this morning becomes the way in which people have been, are, and ever will be saved. As Paul says in Romans 10, 13, quoting the prophet Joel, for everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Unbelieving visitors and children among us. Hear this good news. You right now, the seed of the serpent, refusing to repent of your sins and trust in Christ, hear the good news that he sent his son into the world. Our heavenly father, our creator, sent his son into the world so that every seed of the serpent who would call upon his name who would repent of their sins and trust in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, would be saved. Hear this good news this morning. Know the weight and the condemnation and the guilt that comes with being of the seed of the serpent. 
know the slavery of sin in your own life. But you right now are a servant of Satan. You are a citizen, a card-carrying citizen of the kingdom of darkness that will end up in hell in the lake of fire where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. But light has shined into the darkness, beloved. And the darkness has not overcome it. Unbelievers among us, hear this this morning and know that Jesus Christ came into the world not to condemn it, but that by repentance and faith in him, the world might be saved. Oh, friend, unbelieving friend, we pray this for you today, that as having heard the gospel, the good news of repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, our prayer today is that you would hear and receive and believe and act upon that good news. Well, brothers and sisters, we have spoken of growing in holiness this morning. We have just spoken of the beauty of prayer. Pastor Quinn actually spent some time this morning in Sunday school talking about the importance of prayer. And so given all of this in God's providence, I would be remiss if I did not take the opportunity to urge upon you, my beloved brethren, Thursday night prayer meetings again. Beloved, you know that your pastors are zealous for the liberty that Christ has purchased for you. We are zealous. Do not put yokes and burdens upon you that he, your king, has not. And so we are very careful to not place any command upon you that God has not. And coming to Thursday night prayer meetings definitely falls under the umbrella of something that God has not commanded that you must do. And with that being said, we know, beloved, that prayer is our work. Prayer is a joyous work that belongs to us, the people of God. It is an act of faith to go in prayer to the God we can't see, but that can always see us. Who we can't hear, but hears us. It is an act of faith that allows us to commune with our God. And Thursday nights, we do that together. It allows us to bear each other's burdens and to participate in each other's joys. And Thursday nights, we do that together. And while we must leave the results of our prayers to God, while that is true, beloved, we should not expect to reap the wonderful blessings that come from prayer if we will not labor and sow towards those things in prayer. We should not expect to reap spiritual things if we will not sow spiritual things any more than a man should expect to eat if he will not work. So again, while prayer nights are not commanded of you, I want to make that crystal clear. I believe that you should hear and receive this plea from one of your pastors and weigh it accordingly. Weigh it with the knowledge that our king has raised up among you, myself, Pastor Scott, and Pastor Quinn, and he has given us the labor of watching over your souls for your eternal good. And while we are all in unanimous agreement that prayer meetings on Thursday nights are not commanded, we are also in unanimous agreement that they are good for the spiritual health of this church and our growth in holiness. So receive that. Beloved, as from one of your pastors. 
Well, as we close and prepare to spend some time in calling upon the name of the Lord and reflecting on our passage today, here in our last verse today, in verse 26, we have the end of the second Toledot section of Genesis that began back in, verse, in chapter 2, verse 4. During our time in the second, second section of Genesis, we have seen the rise and the fall of mankind in the Garden of Eden. We have seen mankind exiled east of Eden. We have seen a brother murder his own kin. We have seen the multiplication of wickedness on the earth. And we have seen God's people begin to pray. In a few weeks, when Pastor Quinn begins chapter 5, we will have our attention moved from the Garden of Eden towards the consequences of all that has happened between chapter 2, verse 4, and our passage today. Well, beloved brothers and sisters, our attention is being moved from the Garden of Eden to the flood. And while the wickedness of mankind increases as they are fruitful and multiply, our passage today ends in hope because there is still a remnant. There is still a remnant that God has set apart for himself to call upon his name. And so, beloved, we can learn and glean many things from the book of Genesis, and we will do so, but as we do so, we must remember as we go through this book that every one of those true things is in some way about Christ and is in some way in service to him. And so now, let us call upon the name of the Lord together, asking him to help us to not just be hearers of his word, but to be doers of it. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning thankful for your word, thankful that you have instructed us of why something is here rather than nothing, instructing us of how mankind came into being, instructing us as to why there is evil in the world and instructing us in how we can overcome that evil. Oh, Father, the world has come up with many ways and devices, many plots and schemes, many silver bullets to overcome evil in the world. But Father, as your people here in your embassy, in your church today, help us to know that the only silver bullet is the gospel, that it is your power of salvation, it is your power of reformation for everyone who believes. And so, Father, help us to be your ambassadors, help us to encourage one another with it, and to take it out into the world and urge it on unbelieving mankind that they would be reconciled to you. Well, Father, as we sometimes sing, we call upon your name in prayer for 
Where else can we go, Lord? Where else can we go but our Creator, our Sustainer, our Savior, our King, our God? Where else can we go? For you alone have the words of eternal life. You alone have the authority, the power, and the glory to send forth your Spirit with the reading and the hearing and the preaching of your word, you alone can send him forth and work salvation and sanctification here among us. And so we plead with you to do that today, Father. And we ask this in our King, the Lord Jesus' name. Amen.